Welcome to the Unstoppable CEO Podcast with Steve Gordon. Welcome to the Unstoppable CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Gordon, and today I'm really excited. We're going to be talking about a topic that we have not covered yet on the podcast, and I think it's a really important one for everybody that owns a business. Um, I have been through the process that we've, we're going to talk about here, um, and, and, uh, and I will tell you if it's not well thought through, you're going to be in trouble. So today I'm talking with Kathy Boyle. She's the founder of Chapin Hill Advisors, and um, she really specializes in helping family businesses avoid the implosion that often happens when they try and transition from one generation to the next, or they try and, and make a, an outright sale. And so what we're going to be talking about is business succession, whether you have a family business or not, you're going to want to pay attention to this because at some point you're going to exit your business. You, and, and the question is just going to be, are you going to exit it in a way that you like? And so today we're going to hopefully set you up with some ideas that will help you get there. Uh, Kathy Boyle, welcome to the Unstoppable CEO. Great to be here, Steve. I'm excited about this. We have not talked about this topic um, on the podcast before. I think succession planning is hugely important, having been a part of a succession, and uh, I think it's often ignored. It, it absolutely is. Nobody wants to deal with succession because succession equates to mortality. And I have business owners say all kinds of things to me, including I'm only going out of here feet first. <laughs> and I try to tell them that there's a, a whole lot of distance between standing upright and being flat on a coffin. You know, a lot of other things can happen and you're not in control of your destiny. And so if you're not set up, then you spend your whole life or a good portion of your life building this fabulous business that should be a legacy for your family, whether you outright sell it or transition it to the next generation. And it takes care and feeding to do that. It's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. The other thing a lot of people say to me is, oh yeah, I'll, I'll come back to you in about five years when I'm ready to sell. Well, that doesn't give us the lead time that we need. So that's the thing that we try to get to people on, get them to understand there's no time like the present to start and there's never going to be a perfect time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we can, we can dive into that for sure. Um, I've got some personal perspective on that, that maybe will get people to, to get off the dime. And I know you have a ton of it too. Um, before we dive into that, give everybody a little bit of sense of, of your background and how you got to the stage of your career. Well, I have a very checkered past, so I did not do the straight line career at all, which in many ways prepares me very well for dealing with the entrepreneur because many entrepreneurs are accidental entrepreneurs and they fell into something. Uh, so I actually love, love, love animals. I'm one of nine children. My parents do not like animals. And with nine kids, there wasn't really room for a whole bunch of cats and dogs, et cetera, et cetera. So I must have been an animal in another life. I wanted to be a veterinarian and I wanted to go to Colorado. I don't know how I got that in my mind. I'm from Connecticut. And, uh, I went to Michigan State because, according to me, that was close to Colorado. So geography is <laughs> not my strong suit. You do not want to ask me directions, but you can ask me numbers and names and all that stuff. So anyway, I went to Michigan State to be a veterinarian, but most of the vet schools in the United States are actually Aggie schools. The uh, big use of those schools is to be vets for hog farming cattle, you know, et cetera. And I've been a vegetarian since I was 16. And I do that because I'm morally opposed to killing animals. So killing a chicken and processing it for poultry science was really not... And plus, now I'm all of a sudden I have boys and co-ed dorms and lots of people. And so anyway, after the second year, it was very clear that I really didn't want to be a veterinarian. Um, veterinarians actually have to do whatever their client wants. And I want to be Dr. Doolittle and save animals. So I moved to Colorado all on my own. 
Um, I decided if I was going to live there, I may as well live in a great place. So I lived in Vail, Colorado, and I became a ski bum. <laughs> so I skied for three years and competed freestyle, waited tables at night to make money, and then went country swing dancing, and it was a great life. And then I went down to Boulder and kind of got serious um, and changed my you know, uh, major to commercial recreation and then business. I'm pretty much a serial entrepreneur. I had an aerobic studio called Fitness Fix with Kathy Boyle. I taught for other people. I taught at gyms. I rented a roller skating rink and taught. And I had a little flower business. And I was engaged to a guy that worked for what was the NASD in the old days. So that was regulatory body. And he would come home and show me stocks and I would get it pretty easily. And we broke up. So I decided to move back east and I was going to get a job on Wall Street, make a ton of money and get all these entrepreneurs to invest in my aerobic studio. That was my game plan. And I came back and had a very difficult time getting a job in the late 80s, as all the boys were, according to me, born with uh, suspenders on and little silver spoons, and that's who they were looking for, people that could actually tag onto daddy's golf course list. And so by hook or by crook, I actually finally did get a job in a very big firm. I was one of 100, and we had a cold call every day, 100 dials. It was miserable. And I really targeted business owners, and Merrill had a line of credit, so I actually was forced to learn all about businesses, what a C-Corp was, what an S-Corp, how retained earnings went. I didn't really care about the line. That was the way into the business owner, but I wanted to manage the pension. And so I would do that in the morning. In the afternoon, I called my LOLs, little old ladies, and I sold them muni bonds. And so I built my business as a stockbroker initially, and then I got certified as a financial planner. And I really love planning. And so my business morphed over time to finally add planning in. because I would, I've done a lot of CNBC and Fox and Bloomberg. I pretty much average a show a week. And, uh, you know, I can make common sense out of the market. And so planning was looked at originally as some, you know, other bucket. And now the markets have shifted completely. And now planning does come first. So that's really kind of the long story of how I ended up as planaholic and helping people plan. So anything that comes with a plan, whether it's a startup, whether it's a mature business looking to uh, sell or transition, a divorce plan, well, a lot of times work with the women because we become their financial secret weapon because I can understand what private equity is, what venture capital is, stock options. And the women, for the most part, especially in the wealthier towns, they choose to be a stay-at-home moms or their career may come second. And their primary responsibilities often taking care of the household and the children and the men have the friends with money. And so the women can be at a disadvantage. So a lot of times we help women with the divorce plan and then we call them life plans. The financial plans are really about what's, what's your life like and what's really important to you. And we have touchy feely conversations about everything from adoption to in vitro to how many kids to whether your in-laws are going to live with you you know does mom have steps in a pool very practical and we solve these risks so a lot of what we do is lay out risk i have a high risk tolerance myself i'm a true entrepreneur so i love entrepreneurs and i love the fact that we can create something out of nothing and that we can lapse onto an idea and, and build it into a business i find that so exciting so i love deals i love entrepreneurs i love their energy and I love helping them preserve what they've built. That's a heck of a background. <laughs> Not very traditional. No, I, I, I think somewhere along the line in uh, kindergarten, they forgot to teach how to draw a straight line because that wasn't <laughs> a straight line at all. But, uh, but sometimes that's the best way, you know. I think 
I, I think that's one of the unique things about most entrepreneurs is that, um, you know, we tend to go in all these different directions and, and, uh, you know, there's been a, this, this link or this kind of association with, uh, ADD and ADHD and all of that with entrepreneurs. Um, and I, I kind of look at that, w w whether you're, you know, whether you truly have that condition or not, that sort of distractibility has a huge advantage. Uh, it does. It takes you to the next important thing. It does. And I'm, I'm a big, I really, I don't go to the grocery store without a list. You know, I have a lot going on. I rescue animals. I have 14 of my own. I host events. I have a speaking business. So I really have a full plate every day, which drives me. I can't imagine sitting around and watching TV. I just don't, you know, um, and I have a very active life and I love life. Um, but I have to draw myself little mini lists all day. I started with a day planner. I was trained in the Franklin Covey method and I still continue to use a physical day planner that keeps me very grounded and I try to plan my day in advance and you know the old adages that they tell you 20 minutes of planning creates an extra hour the next day is really true and everything from even people wasting time with multiple trips to the grocery store if you add up an extra 20 minute trip three times a week you lost an hour of your life you know so even planning your meals out and planning ahead so I just find it very easy I just like to plan and I can throw an event for 150 people we actually cook all the food for these events so it, it brings everything together for me and uh, and I love being able to help people you know, I love helping people while I'm also doing what I love to do. Yeah, that's great. Well, you know, you've you've been involved in an awful lot of uh, business transitions and advising businesses, and I know you've you've built multiple businesses. When you get to a point where something's just not working, or you're working with a client and they're they've hit a brick wall, what what advice do you give them? What do you draw on from maybe your past? to, you know, advise them and, and push through that, that obstacle? I think that's a great question. And too many people can fall into their own soup or whatever that's, you know, they just get depressed and they, you know, I just talked to one friend, she spent the last three of the last days in bed and she's complaining that it's raining and none of her things are working. And, and I'm like, I'm sorry, you got to change your mindset here. So whether it's a Tony Robbins tape, I do listen to Tony Robbins podcasts a lot of times in the morning. I've got a couple of coaches that send out links to other podcasts. It's amazing how quickly you can change your mindset. And one of Tony Robbins things is actually if you physically move, he actually recommends getting up and just doing 10 jumping jacks, 20 jumping jacks, and physically changing your body can change your mindset. Um, one of the other techniques that I use is I actually, a journal and I write in that journal and I write everything out. I take a lot of time on a weekend. I usually do it like once a week for a lot. If I'm having a bad time, I do it every morning and it changes your mindset. You're able to sort of dump all the negative stuff that you don't want your spouse to have to continue to hear or your best friend to hear over and over and over again. Um, you can dump it into the journal and then you can kind of create a path to success. I also post a motivational quote every morning, and I find that just reading those motivational quotes, um, you know, today's was be somebody who makes everybody feel like somebody. It's just such such a simple little thing, but, you know, if you go about your day, you know, it's like give a smile away, it's free. You know, so these are corny little things, but they actually really, truly work. So I find that you have to find your mindset. And when you're beating yourself up, and certainly I've been through very difficult times, and I've been through periods where, 
you know, I've, I've never actually been suicidal, but it certainly seemed like I don't know what else to do. What else am I supposed to do? And, um, you know, when we make these mistakes in business that are cataclysmic, and I've made several, you know, you're sitting here going, how am I so smart and I could be so stupid? So you can't spend a lot of time on the stupid because it doesn't get you anywhere. You've got to spend some time on the path. You know, God did this for a reason or the universe did this for a reason, whatever you want to believe. But let's create the path out. What works? What's your passion? Sometimes you're in a business or a, a job that is going nowhere. You might be making thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions, but you're unhappy. So change something. What's your passion? You know, whether it's going to live in Costa Rica and buying an apple orchard or, or a fruit orchard, you know, whatever it is, there's a way to make that happen if you truly want it. You know, the, the interesting thing that I, I kind of heard between the lines there is that you recognize that you've got the power to choose. And, I, and that's powerful because I know from entrepreneurs I talk to, I know just people that come into my life that I talk to, that I think a very small minority of the people on the planet actually understand that they they have the choice. So you mentioned, you know, if, if your passion is being, you know, an, an, an apple orchard farmer in Costa Rica, and you're living in Ohio, that, you know, you're not planted there. You know, it's not like you're stuck down in the ground, and you've got roots, and you can't get up and move. Um, and I think a lot of people don't believe that, that, that there really is possibility for them to make that change. Do you run across that when you're, when you're working with your clients ever? Yeah, I find not so much the entrepreneurs because I think entrepreneurs are, they're stubborn, they're determined, um, they're usually visionaries, they usually have passion. So I think most entrepreneurs that I've met um, are, are the ones that will pull up their boots and take the next step. The people that I get frustrated with are, you know, the people that are like TGIF, you know, thank God it's Friday. Well, thank God it's Friday. We just lost another week of our lives, you know, and so <laughs> I, I don't really like to look at life that way. I like to look at what can we do today to make a change in someone else's life, an animal's life, or our own future. And I think that I don't relate to those people. And I've been frustrated. Uh, you know, we see this in divorce, actually. In the divorce with the women who want to cry and cry, and I understand it's a very emotionally challenging time, but I'm about, okay, you had a great life. You have three beautiful children. They went to private school. You drive a Range Rover. You live in a $2 million house. You've been married for 20 years. I'm sorry that this is the end of the path, but there's a whole new life. You know, you got another 20, 30, 50 years ahead of you. Let's get the best possible solution for you and your family now. And those are the people I like to work with. So I do get frustrated with the ones that want to tell me for the 15th time how he left him for a young cookie or how their life is miserable or they have no skill sets. You know, I asked one woman, what was her passion? She had been an analyst on Wall Street, so she obviously had a degree and skill sets, and she'd been a stay-at-home mom for 20 years, but she started crying and saying she had no passion, the passion was out of her life. I, I, you know, I'm sorry, I, I can't relate to those people, so I do have, a, I'm very empathetic, but I don't have a lot of time, so if someone's not going to be receptive to listening and working with it, I, I'm, I'm not a good fit for them. Yeah, I can imagine, that, and that frustrates me too, because you look at them and you go, Look, it's all right in front of you. You just can't see it. It's, it, it's like you're blind. 
and it's mm-hmm. right there. All you've got to do is make, make that choice and you have the power to do it. Um, and, and it can be very frustrating. So, I, and I, that, that's a fantastic point. And I think one that's all, always worthy, even for those of you listening who are nodding along going, yeah, I got it. That's me. It's still good to hear it and, uh, and kind of have that affirmed. Um, and, and thank you for doing that, Kathy. I want to take a quick break. Um, and, and when we come back, I want to dive into succession planning because I think this is a, a really important topic that folks need to hear. And I know you've got a lot to share on that. So we're going to be right back with more from Kathy Boyle. Hi, this is Steve. I hope you're enjoying this interview. We've got more to come in a minute, but what I'd love for you to do right now is rate this podcast. Leave us a review, rate us on iTunes. It'll really help others discover the podcast and help us help other CEOs, other business leaders become unstoppable. So if you go to unstoppableceo.net forward slash iTunes, You can find instructions there and links that will take you right to where you need to go to review the podcast. Thanks so much. Now back to the interview. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is Steve Gordon. And today I'm talking with Kathy Boyle from Chapin Hill Advisors. And Kathy, we promised that when we came back, we were going to talk a little bit about succession planning. Um, And so for a business owner who's listening to this and is maybe, you know, within five, 10, 15 years of thinking, I want to be out of this business. How would you begin to talk to them about succession planning? That's a great question, Steve. And I think let's frame it first in the macro sense. There's over 5 million privately held business in the United States. The average age of the CEO is 60. 70%, according to PricewaterhouseCoopers, who does great surveys, great white papers, 70% of those surveys say in the next five to 10 years, they'd like to transition in some way, shape, or form. Yet only 31% of them have any semblance of a plan. And in many cases, it's simply a will. And a will is not enough. And then when you get to the failure from first generation to second generation, only 30% of those businesses survive. And from second to third, only 12%. And from third to fourth, only 3%. The 60% of the reason for failure is lack of communication by the family members, between the family members. And number two is 25% is lack of preparedness for the next gen to take over. So that really gets to the gist of what I talk about because the entrepreneur is generally a multitasker. As you said, we're a little ADD. Um, And so we're able to juggle a lot of balls. Also, we ex- our intuition is based on experience. So you can talk to someone on a first call if you're selling them your marketing services through your agency, and you can tell whether or not they're going to be resistant or they're going to be a good fit. Are they going to be open-minded? So the same thing here. You've got to think about the business owner. Are they ready to take the time to carve out some systems? That lack of communication a lot of times is that the CEO has everything in his head or her head. And we're not patient people generally. And so letting someone else learn how to do it and make little mistakes along the way on their own without mom or dad coming down hard on them is very, it's hard to do. And so that's really the process that we like to think about. But where we actually start is what's enough? Everybody, when I used to do CNBC's middle of the day power lunch and and call-ins, everybody wants that magic formula. How much is enough? And so your business could comprise 70% of your net worth. And selling it is not something you should undertake 
in a, a last minute decision or just pick somebody, you know, when you told me about your transition, you were only four years out of school and the, the owner came and made you the CEO. Now they spent 10 years transitioning, which is wise, but, you know, sometimes entrepreneurs are too quick to make, you know, these mistakes I've made have been with people. I like everybody. I'm a salesperson, you know, so I think the best of everybody. And I also think what I do is easy. And that's the other mistake entrepreneurs make. We think what we do is easy because we can do it. And so I think coming from the get-go of like, okay, what's going to be enough? If I have my business doing $3 million or $5 million in revenue right now, what's it worth to someone else if someone outright buys it? Can I afford to give it to my children? If Should I transition it gradually? Should I give them shares over time? Or should we do an ESOP, which is an employee stock op option purchase plan, which will is more complicated, but that's a way to have multiple employees, including your children, take it over. So you've got to start thinking about what it is you want, and then we create an exit, and we do multiple sets of scenarios. So what if you gave the children your business? How much savings do you have? How much pension do you have? Is that going to be enough? What's your lifestyle going to be like? Are you going to have multiple homes? Do you want to have one home where all the children and grandchildren come to roost? Do you want to be the big daddy down in you know a beautiful house in Palm Beach, and everybody comes there for spring break? And, and vacations. So what's your lifestyle look like? Have you worked really hard all your life and now you want to really completely detach and go lay on the beach in Greece or go on cruises? So what's your lifestyle like? And then we peg numbers to that. And then we can work backwards. So if you have an exit plan in mind and you make it stated, now you have to be able to tell your children. And that becomes another challenge because a lot of times, maybe not all three of your kids are suited to be in the business. Maybe your daughter should be running the business and not your sons. Maybe you and your wife or you and your husband disagree on who should be the lead. I had one woman, the, the husband ran a very, very successful, largest private company of its kind. The only company that could actually probably buy this company in one piece would be a public company. And um, the wife and I were, were hanging out at her fireplace one night and, um, and she said, I'm just going to sell the company. I don't want them to be mad at me. And I'm thinking about the two daughters and the son, all three of them run divisions, and they're not going to be mad at her because she sold business, you know, and then the capital gains tax and everything else, you know, and who's the buyer and did you get the right price? So these are all the different things that we think about. It sounds like a lot, but it falls to the same kind of process. What do you have now? What will you have in the future? What are your goals and how do we get there? It's really just sort of starting with the end in mind and, and working your way back. Sounds like. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And the end could be multiple things because as you know, God may have different plans for you than you have for you. And, you know, when the, when the person tells me that they're going out fee first, um, and that man happened to be 88 years old, and he ran a car show that made a lot of money, had 20,000 visitors every year. And um, his daughter was in her 40s. He was 88. His whole house in Greenwich, Connecticut, was uh, testimonial to cars. Every place, there were models and magazines and everything. And I'm meeting with him in his house, and he made a lot of money at this point. He was a character. And his daughter was in her 40s, and she did the administration for it. He had two sons. And I said, um, well, if you did sell, if you fell dead right now and the, the house was sold, it's going to be worth X, and the business might be worth Y. And I said, all three children are going to get their third. And he looked at me and goes, oh, that wouldn't be good. My daughter is a flower child. She'll spend it all. <laughs> <laughs> 
And yet he needed to take action, you know, and, and he thought one son was the heir apparent and the other son, I don't know whether or not he would have disinherited him or not, but, you know, he's in the middle of planning the next event. So, of course, there's no time to sit down with me. And unfortunately, that man got very sick and he died. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the business was, is not, it, it is still running, but it's not at the level that it could have been with some planning. So, you know, that's the part for us that's very difficult is when we get to people and they wait until a cataclysmic event happens in their life, we've lost a lot of our edge. You know, part of the edge we can help people with is if they have a very valuable business and many entrepreneurs are sort of serial entrepreneurs, they have real estate holdings, they might own the real estate that the business is in, they may own multiple properties, they may have them in different LLCs, they may have them all in one corporation. We look at the structure of those things and liability and everything else. But um, what we look at is, you know, what is what if this business is worth more than your estate tax exemption? So right now you're able to get 11 million per spouse. And if it's your first marriage, it's a little bit easier. But the second marriage, it gets very complicated on that because there may be multiple children from different marriages. So we look at all of this. But you can protect $22 million, which sounds like an awful lot of money. But if you're doing, if you have a business that's doing 40 or $50 million in revenue, and it's very profitable, it could be worth that much as a sale value. So you're going to be on the um, estate tax, and then there's going to be a liquidity crunch uh, for your children because the IRS wants that money in nine months after your death. So we might come in with a valuation firm and a privately held enterprise is allowed a substantial discount. And so we may take one enterprise and discount the valuation and gift it and use some of your estate tax exemption currently to gift it into a trust that's outside of your estate. Or it may take other assets and do that. So that's part of it. And if you have children right now, you know, we have an opiate crisis in the United States. We have a lot of drug and addiction issues with children. And that's something, and we also have, you know, uh, autistic children and special needs children. So when you have a child that needs special attention, whether it's from drug and alcohol addiction or special needs, um, you have to address that. And it's really not fair to the other siblings to make them be in control. And so you really have to think through these issues and think through how much is enough. And if they do have drug and alcohol addiction issues, then they probably should never actually have control of a very large amount of money there probably should be a trust in place. And then choosing that trustee or multiple trustees and what vehicle. And then very often we're going to suggest a guardian. And we also do this with pet trust. Pets are really important. Animals are very important to my life. I rescue. I help lots of rescues place animals. And um, 60% of the animals killed in shelters in the United States, and we kill 3.5 million of them, are owner surrenders. And some of that is people that are moving and can't take the dog with them. Some of it is people who die and didn't leave a plan of action. Uh, but others, um, three and a half million animals are killed in shelters. 60% of those are owner surrenders. And very often, um, 
it, it is an example of somebody that doesn't have money and they're moving out of their apartment or they're abandoning their dog. But an awful lot of this is people that don't have a plan of action. They die and they leave four cats in the house and the in-laws or the kids or the cousins don't want them and they just open the door and let the cats out. So um, those animals get picked up and brought in to a kill shelter and they're killed. So we're real big advocates of putting a pet trust in as part of your overall estate planning. I happen to have a horse and my horse is expensive. So horses are very expensive to take care of. So that's another component that we like to focus on. If your pet or multiple pets are important to you and if they have longevity, you also want to think about them as an entity and not have them become a burden to somebody else. Nobody wants your parrot. Your children do not want your noisy parrot that can live to age 100. <laughs> so those are some of the issues that we address as well. Well, what I'm hearing in all of this is that it is it's kind of like peeling back an onion. There's all these different layers to it. It's a much more complicated process than I think most business owners would believe because there's all these moving parts that you've probably never even thought of. And, and so it makes sense to reach out to somebody early on and, and begin having the conversation because, um, you know, I, I know having, having been through one, it takes time. It just takes a lot of time. Um, there are a lot of moving parts and a lot of details. And, um, and if you don't give yourself that time, you're going to end up, I think, with a, a, a result that you really don't want. Um, and, and that'll either mean that the, you know, the business can't continue or that uh, you don't get the value out of it that you want. Right. I mean, one of the one of the presentations that I give is how four business owners left a billion dollars on the table. Oh, it, and, you know, you can't really talk about succession planning. I have a speaking business called Kathy Boyle on the Go, and I love to talk to associations of business owners. And But I can't talk about succession planning or no one will be in the room. And so we camouflage it by putting these topics in. But that's really a combination of you lose a lot of value if you don't plan for your estate tax exemption well in advance, because if you have time, you can do lots and lots of things. If you're young enough, you can buy enough insurance that's cheap enough. If you and your wife are both healthy, you can buy second-to-die insurance. There's a million different things that you can do in terms of uh, if you have the luxury of time, but you run out of time, you know, if you have to all of a sudden try to make gifts to all your children of $14,000 a year or $15,000 a year, you're not going to get rid of millions and millions of dollars. So you're going to pay tax. And the other issue is if you don't plan for transition, if you don't become unessential, most entrepreneurs, even very large enterprises, unless they really, really have put structure in place, the entrepreneur is still the decision maker. And I see this all the time where entrepreneurs micromanage. They hire very expensive people to run things, but that person won't really make a decision without checking with the CEO. Unlike a corporation where they grow up in the ranks, you know, with line responsibility and, you know, that's not my gift, but, you know, entrepreneurs don't have that kind of structure for the most part. I recently talked to a CEO who's 78 years old. No C-suite whatsoever, 273 employees, five different locations, one division losing money. And he built this up over 35 years. He made other mistakes along the way, but, you know, he sees himself continuing to be at the mantle. And his son doesn't really want to move to the boondocks to take over the company, nor does he want to change his lifestyle to become the CEO. So that becomes a harder situation. You know, I had a business broker come to me with a business for sale, and um, the second generation ran that business until he's 89 years old. And he apparently had an iron fist. 
So Sonny Boy, who's the current third generation CEO, is 75 years old. He didn't take the company over until he's 60. Wow. So he made multiple mistakes. It's a high-end retail product, and they had a Madison Avenue store for $60,000 a month in rent. But this is where your clientele lives. And in the 08 debacle, he also had a, um, a personal situation that took a lot of money. I think they, my guess is they didn't have the personal resources to withstand the downturn. And so he made a really, really stupid business decision and moved the business to a much less expensive location, but changed it to where the trade would be, the, the um, sales point, where it had been a 100-year-old company. And so he took this business from $5 million in revenue all the way down to one and a half. And of that, 400000 was a one-time purchase by a movie star. So that's not renewable. When somebody looks to buy your business, they want renewable cash flow. Cash flow is king. They want to see that that cash is going to come in no matter what, and they can build on that. They can open up another location. They can improve the website. They can bring on more products. They can you know, do all kinds of other things, but they want to see the cash flow. So this guy was not going to be able to sell the business, certainly for what he he thought he was going to get and the business broker had spent a whole year trying to sell it. I happened to have a buyer, but the business broker was just not willing to even entertain it and was very, very difficult. So that's a business there. The CEO is still running it, but uh, they're not going to be able to sell it and they're not going to be able to sell. I don't think they have the capital to build it up to where it could be. So those are the sad stories we see. So if you don't plan ahead and let your kids, if the kids are taking over the business, you got to let them swim. You got to drop them in the ocean, whether that's going to work for someone else. That's what I see a lot of business owners do. They have rules in the family and they go let them swim in someone else's pond. Go work for one of our competitors. Go work in another business. Try your ideas out over there. You know, learn in somebody else's nickel. You know, I have a, a Greek guy that gets very upset. He complains to his wife all the time because he tells his son, don't lend money to this guy. And he's, he's sitting with me in his diner and he, and he touches the salt and pepper shaker like it's a shock. He goes, boom, he gets burned. He goes, but it's my $10,000 he burned. So that's <laughs> a lot of times we get too close to the fire and we think about it too personally. Yeah. And we've got to be able to let those kids make some mistakes. They've got to learn to spread their wings and fly on their own. Well, and I mean, the reality is um, we all made the mistakes. And that's how we learned and that's how we built businesses to begin with. Um, and, and if they don't have the opportunity to do that, they're not going to be prepared. Um, you know, there's only so much, I think that you can, you know, we never want our kids to, you know, have to go through every single mistake that we made. Hopefully we can transfer some of the learning that, that we, you know, that we developed, but they're going to make some and, and they need to. And, um, and particularly if they're going to run a business. Exactly. And that's, it is a very hard thing because it becomes personal. And of course, the family dynamics get into this. You know, one of the things that we often advocate is divorce is extremely messy if it's in a family business. And if the, the in-law has worked in the business, he or she has keys to the kingdom. They know where all the secrets are buried. And if you haven't been 100% up and up on your books, they can turn you in, you know, and I'm not saying anybody's doing something bad, but you know, it can make it extremely difficult. Divorce is very, very disruptive, especially if both parties are working in the business because now you have business disruption and now you have the family dynamics on top of that. So we're big advocates of making prenups part of your family business governance. 
and actually having governance and having rules. One of the things that we also see is, you know, there's two different siblings and the older siblings' kids get to the finish line first. So at 21, they walk into the business after college and, and take over. The next one's five years younger or six years younger and his or her kids are much younger. And by then they've realized that they made some mistakes. Maybe the 21-year-old isn't mature enough or maybe not all the kids are as mature as one another. And um, now they don't want them to have voting shares or they don't want them to have a seat at the table yet. And so thinking about this when your kids are young, when the kids are seven and eight and 10, it seems so far away for them to walk into the business, it's much less emotional. And it's much easier to plan with a pragmatic kind of tone. And we've, I was talking to one business owner recently, she has a foundation and her board is too, um, she's, she's French, so her board has a lot of French and she really is in America. It's an American foundation. So my suggestion was she needed to broaden the board and we were talking about governance on the board and, um, she's, she's a former attorney, so she's very pragmatic and she's, she's much less emotional than many people that I run into, but she couldn't even imagine some of the stories that I began to tell her from having sat on boards and the things that I've seen with financial malfeasance or term sheets that went on terms that went on too long or having a mechanism for realizing that this board member is not a good fit and being able to get them off the board before they create damage to the foundation or not-for-profit. So, same thing applies in a family business. It's the less emotional you can be, the further on you, you can plan. I have seen everything. I have seen, you know, siblings not let the other siblings into the house they inherited and not be able to take the pictures of them and their mom from when they were five years old because the house went to one particular brother. Oh and money is very emotional. And if it becomes the family business, one granddaughter that I was referred to to handle part of her inheritance was her grandfather had the largest business of its kind in the United States with a Hong Kong partner. And one daughter got mad at the other daughter over the transition and she sued her for over 30 years. Wow. And became a lawyer just so she didn't have to hire an attorney. Oh my goodness. And it was horrible and you can't even imagine ending up in this, but these are the war stories. So what we try to tell people is we've been there. We're in the trenches. We've seen it. We've learned the mistakes. We've, you know, we can identify them ahead of time. And our job is, you know, it's, it's, it's your business, Steve. So if you want to wear blue shoes, that's your choice. And I might think you really should wear these black shoes, but uh, it's not my business. It's not my life. It's ultimately your decision but I'm going to just point out the risks. We order them in order of priority. So whatever is on the upper left-hand quadrant of our little risk matrix, those are the things that if you don't address soon, if something happens, your financial stability is upside down. And so that's how we proceed with this process because every business owner is busy. There's never enough hours in the day. First words out of their mouth are generally, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. And there's never an ideal time to start this. And so our process is, is designed to work with the business owners. We make little action steps. And then we bring in the right person to help them execute, whether it's valuation, trust and estate, new accounting firm, maybe a fractional CFO. You know, again, if you're running multiple businesses, a lot of this stuff is in your head. You know, I recently met with um, two 
two brothers. I've only met with one and they own seven different restaurants. They own push carts. They own all kinds of stuff. And now they're buying real estate in four different states and they have no wills. And he has four minor children. And so I'm very blunt. So I said to him, I said, you know, if you died, your wife would want you to come back. Not because she missed you. She would just want to kill you again because you left her in <laughs> testate in four states. You're going to have probate attorneys in four different states. And she's going to have to travel back and forth and get court documents and everything else. This is so easily fixable. Yeah. I have wonderful trust in the state attorneys, you know, and the other thing is I said to him, I said, you're the only one that can juggle this. You're the only one that knows he's taking cash flow from one place and putting it in another wherever he sees the need. I can tell what he's doing even without having getting into the financials because he hasn't hired me yet. But, you know, these are the kinds of things. And, you know, sometimes, again, I see this a lot with first generation immigrants. A lot of times I've worked with Turks and Persians and Greeks, and they uh, tend to hire someone either in their local community. So if they're in a smaller town, they hired the local attorney that was recommended. And or if they're Turkish, a lot of times or any of any ethnic generation, they tend to hire someone they trust. So a lot of times that's their own ethnic background. And that's great when they started out and I'm not panning them in at all. But very often the business went from one million to 10 million to 20 million and they have multiple real estate, maybe in two countries. And now you're dealing with a whole infrastructure of international tax. I have one particular man that I worked with and his trust and state attorney own part of the ski mountain where he had his ski house. The man graduated NYU in 1954. He was ancient and he was a real estate attorney, not a trust and estate attorney. Mm. And he, and this, this particular client owns a number of properties in Israel. And I don't know the estate tax structure in Israel, but we definitely need to know what it is because if we change ownership, we have to be able to factor that in. And these are the kinds of things I find entrepreneurs often go with their gut. They hire somebody from the golf club or hire somebody that their buddy's using. And they don't think, um, they don't think big picture. They don't think whether or not this person is truly the right fit for them over the long term. And we wow. can all sell against one another, right? So I can take apart somebody else's work because it's 2020 hindsight. And so that's the other thing is we can get sold very easily as to why so-and-so is going to be your ultimate cure. So you really, the sooner you can start this process, and it also works for startups. If you're starting a business and you think you have a brilliant idea, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with various friends of mine who are thinking of opening up a business and, you know, I'm going to open a toy shop. Well, we're about to go into recession. So are toys recession resistant? I have somebody right now opening up a pet wellness therapy center and, you know, she's been a corporate wife for 25 years and she has resources. So she has very expensive, you know, um, things for her pets that take away pain. And the average person may not be able to afford that, number one. And number two, it's not recession resistant. So I'm trying to convince her to uh, impart, embody uh, pet uh, doggy daycare. Because doggy daycare is actually somewhat recession resistant. It's cheaper if you have one dog and both couples, both people in the household are working. Drop off the dog rather than having dog sitter come multiple times. And then we have constant cash flow. And um, she wasn't really wild about this because she didn't want to have to clean up poop. Right. Which <laughs> <laughs> comes part and part. Yeah, you know, it's funny. There's always, there's always that part of the, the running of any business that, that mm -hmm. uh, none, of, none of us really want to do, but it's part of the deal, right? It is. It is. It is. Well, Kathy, this is uh, this is absolutely fascinating. This is an important topic that folks 
really need to focus on. Um, you know, I, I, I used to be involved in a, a CEO group and, and our, our first question to every new member is, what's your exit plan? And, um, and that was one of the things we kind of held people's feet to the fire so that they would know how they were getting out. And, um, and I appreciate you sharing those insights with us today. So if, if folks want to find out more about what you're doing and want to get in contact with you, if they need help, where should they go? What's the best place for them to reach you? So our website is easy, chapinhill.com, C-H-A-P-I-N-H-I-L-L.com. Uh, we're located in Bedford, New York, which is just outside of New York City, but we can work anywhere in the country. And our phone number is 212-583-1992, and I'm extension 101. And kboyle at chapinhill.com is my email, and you can easily find me on LinkedIn as well. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure we put all of that in the show notes so people can uh, reach out if they if they feel like they have a need. And again, I think this is, is such an important thing for business owners to, to focus on. We talk a lot on the show about marketing and sales and, and all of that other stuff, which, you know, in the day-to-day is, you know, it's got the attention of business owners. And I think that's the danger with something like succession planning, whether you've got a family business or you've got a business that, that you ultimately want to sell to the outside. If you don't start thinking about it early, you're not going to get it done and you're not going to get the value out of it that you really should. So you owe it to yourself to begin having these conversations early. Uh, Kathy, thanks for for pointing this all out to us and, and kind of shining the light on, on something that's so important. Um, I appreciate you being here. I love being here. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate your podcast. This episode of the Unstoppable CEO podcast is sponsored by the Unstoppable Agency. That is the agency part of our business where we work with professional service firms and create a done-for-you marketing program. And what that looks like is we actually sit down with you. We come together and define your ideal client with you. We go build a list of those people, and then we begin reaching out to them on your behalf to book them as guests on your podcast. We call it podcast prospecting, and it's a fantastic way to connect with potential clients and influencers that can refer you. And it's end-to-end a done-for-you system. And so if that's something that you think might be the right fit for your business, go to our website, go to unstoppableceo.net. You can uh, find there on the homepage a link to a video presentation that explains how it all works. And if you'd like, let's get together and have a quick 20-minute conversation and see if we're a fit. Again, that's at unstoppableceo.net. Right on the homepage, look for a link to the video that explains how it all works.